This is Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, former Estonian President Tomas Ilves on recovering from a Russian attack. As in um, all countries occupied by the Soviet Union in one form or another, they kind of, like dogs, leave a mark of where they've been. And so there is a monument in virtually every city they have occupied. When we went to NATO, some large countries in NATO, not the United States or the UK, but other large countries would say, oh, you can't prove it. You're just being Russophobic, which was kind of uh, typical. I mean, especially when it's said by people who really would not have been able at the time to distinguish a, uh, a computer from a toaster. My current fear is that the minute the Russians make a concession, everyone's going to run to, okay, now let's take off all the sanctions. Thomas Elvis, welcome to Chatter. Thanks for joining us. Well, it's great to be here. Since I'm such a devoted listener, I was, uh, <laughs> I'm happy to be here. I hope I'm not as interesting as all the other ones you've done. Well, I, I hope you make me feel slightly better than one of my recent conversations, which uh, you and I chatted about afterward about the poisonings and Dr. Neil Bradbury talking about ricin and polonium-210 and Novichok, which was an interesting chat, I will say intellectually, but I felt a little bit dirty afterwards thinking, are we are we giving too much credit to assassins and uh, and in any way celebrating it? I don't think we did, but you can no, you can be I the judge was- of that as a listener. It was a very informative. And if I recall right, you were, you were trained in some science as well. Didn't you study psychology? Yeah, I, I, I studied physiological psychology and perception, mm-hmm. uh, but that was uh, very many years ago, 40, <laughs> 45 years ago. Right. Uh, useful, perhaps, in uh, having a fairly decent uh, background in uh, Statistics, mathematics, uh, scientific method. Uh, people sometimes say, "Oh, you were trained as a psychologist. You must be analyzing what Putin thinks." I go, "No, I don't. It's not that kind of stuff." <laughs> well, your story is a remarkable one, even uh, even apart from that. I mean, your parents left Estonia in what the early nineteen forties when the Russians nineteen forty four. 44, when the Russians started the mass deportations of Estonians. But you grew up in, in Stockholm first, and then a lot in the United States. What, what stories did your parents tell you about that time in Estonia and about the Russians? I mean, one of the things growing up is that uh, you speak one language at home, and then you speak another language in school, and uh, uh, you ask, why am I here? And they go, well, People came and deported us, you know, I mean, so, and uh, it was never really the Russians. It was more the commies. I mean, it was kind of, I asked, remember when I uh, yeah. asked my father, uh, dad, what's a communist? And he said, people who come in the middle of the night, put you in a, in a, uh, a cattle car and ship you to Siberia. Now for him, that was kind of a form, formative experience since he was, um, he was a, had a summer job in the railways yards mm-hmm. in um, 
in Tallinn, the capital. And uh, one day, suddenly, all these cattle cars showed up, which he thought it was kind of weird, but anyway. And the next day, they were filled with people. And he spent the night running around giving people who had been thrown into cattle cars water to drink, because that was the first thing they wanted was water. And, and that was something that so completely shocked and traumatized him that he never really got over it. How did he manage to run from car to car offering water and not end up on one of the cars? I don't know. Uh, I mean, I mean, I guess he was kind of in a privileged position because he was the orphan son of the head of the railway unions. I mean, typical of the Soes was they, 10 years after my grandfather on my father's side died in 1936 of mm -hmm. cancer, uh, in 1946, uh, since there were no people to laud in Estonia and explain the occupation, the then communist-controlled labor union put up a monument to my grandfather. Uh, I mean, just kind of weird, right? I mean, but they were looking for some kind of people to say, "Well, see, we had we had commies here before," and so a uh, a labor union head was good enough, I guess, especially since he was dead. What? How close did you feel? Where when you were growing up, you grew up uh, a lot of time in New Jersey and going to college in the United States. And, and yet your, your Estonian identity was part of your daily life. And I'm wondering how you, how you managed that across the miles and stayed in touch with what you felt was you know, your, your heritage. I don't know. I, I've never really thought about in terms of identity, um, at least not in the way that people write about it. Uh, it was just there. I mean, it's just kind of normal. Uh, you uh, you live a, you live with a foot in one culture, a foot in the other culture, and then there are kind of discrepancies and things are kind of funny. And uh, in some cases, and uh, uh, it never really, I don't know, it was just something that was there. I mean, you, you know language and you read the literature and mm -hmm. it's just there. I mean, it was never kind of... Um, big thing it was normal uh, that was all well it became uh, a big thing i mean obviously you become estonian's ambassador to the united states in uh, the early 1990s uh, serving as minister of foreign affairs a couple of times as a member at the european parliament and then as president of estonia starting in 2006 for a lot of our listeners especially listeners here in america who quite honestly aren't that good about understanding political systems that are not their own, and I would even argue uh, not even their own. Um, can you describe how the election of the president works in Estonia and what happened in both 2006 and uh, 2011? Well, I mean, basically we have an electoral college. I mean, in um, the US, you elect a set of electors. And so too, in my country, it's just the electors are the parliament. And we have, but we have a high threshold there, uh, which is you need two thirds of the parliament to elect you. So it's, you need, we have 101 members, so you need 68 votes. And the idea behind that in uh, forming the constitution was that you want uh, a president elected with sufficiently broad support, which also explains why I was 
at least made a candidate since the centrists parties i mean the the center right the center left and then the liberals which in a european sense liberals uh came to me in 2006 and said uh, well we've done our polling and you're the most popular person to run against the incumbent uh please run for president and i said i don't want to be president i really didn't i mean at that time, I was a, a, a real member of the European Parliament and vice chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, and I really had no interest in doing something because um, you know the president's role in a parliamentary democracy is much smaller than it is in an executive uh, presidential system as you have in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, and, they, and they said, "Oh, don't worry, you won't be elected." I said, "Okay, well then I'll run," and then. Uh, you know, then, and then the day of the election, when they're counting the votes, it's like, oh, shit. <laughs> Literally, yep. that is what I said um, in Estonian. <laughs> what <course>. now? <laughs> well, that was basically, yes. And so um, then by uh, in 2011, uh, the second time, uh, basically, I had support across the board and there wasn't even an issue um, mm -hmm. because by that time, I, I mean, I realized that I didn't, there was a, the opposing candidate was not someone too many people took seriously, kind of a populist, mm -hmm. but I was reelected. Yes. Well, something, something happened in that first term that I'd really like to focus on here. And that is, the 2007 cyber attacks on Estonia and the lessons learned from them, which have taken Estonia to the forefront of digital government and security. Uh, first, the attacks themselves. Um, talk through, if you will, what happened before the attacks with the, the bronze soldier of Tallinn, the war grave, is what happened, and then the reaction from Russian or Russian-backed cyber attackers. Okay, well, two parts. One is, I mean, what, what had happened is that, uh, as in um, all uh, sort of former uh, countries occupied by the Soviet Union in one form or another, uh, they kind of, like dogs, leave a mark of where they've been. And, uh, and so there is a monument in virtually every city they have occupied. And uh, the one that was in Tallinn, uh, and it seems in retrospect with, uh, with some GRU assistance, perhaps even considerable, became a focal point of uh, demonstrations on the 9th of May. And, uh, at, and first they were peaceful and fine, but then they became rowdier and rowdier and kind of drunken and spilled out into the streets and people... Ordinary people were being harassed, and the government there would be just increasing pressure to move it. The idea was not to tear it down; it never was, but it was to move it to a military cemetery about two kilometers away. Uh, well, this was decided. Um, then a riot ensued, and this was uh, kind of. Uh, um, quite unfortunate because I think it did a lot of most damage to Russians living in Estonia, not too much to anyone else. But um, in any case, uh, this riot uh, ensued. And then following that, uh, one morning, uh, the web pages didn't work. And the web pages 
in Estonia didn't work, whereas I could read the Financial Times and the New York Times and, and Helsinki, Helsinki newspapers, but which I anyway would scan every morning, but you couldn't get any Estonian newspapers. And then it turned out that the president's web page had been taken down and so forth. And so you can quickly deduce that this is something that's going on in our country and not going elsewhere. And the first thing is, well, I mean, it's not that the, the entire system is down, but rather that these are only Estonian sites. Mm-hmm. And of course, banks were taken down. So the banks didn't work. The uh, newspapers were taken down. Um, uh, for background, I mean, just just so you know, I mean, this is actually what I'm much more proud of is that um, Estonia was already the most digitized country in Europe at that time, mm-hmm. and and what when people people tend to focus too much on on the, my official titles, but rather I proposed in 1994 that one way to get out of the um, sort of the miasma of uh, Soviet, the Soviet economy was that we digitize. Uh, mm-hmm. And the background to that was, I mean, I was sitting in Washington going, oh God, the economy is a mess and we have all this stuff to do. And we will always be stuck in Zeno's paradox that Achilles will never catch up with the tortoise, if you mm-hmm. know Zeno's paradox. And that, okay, so we can like do all kinds of stuff, but you know they'll still all be ahead of us, the West. Yeah. And uh, so a couple of things happened. One happened when I was a 15-year-old, which was I learned to code as a 15-year-old <laughs> in this in a one-off pro- uh, computer education year that my math teacher had because she was doing her PhD at Columbia Teachers College in math education. So she did this experiment to see if she could teach kids to code, which we did, and we all learned basic. And computer coding was not common for kids then. You were in a rare experience at that time because it wasn't as prevalent as it is now where you can find coding classes all too easily. Oh, absolutely. This was, uh, I mean, this was 1971. Yeah. Uh, so that was, had been with me. And then, so I knew that. And then, um, and then uh, this uh, funny thing happened, which was that um, Mosaic came out. It was the first web browser. I mean, uh, basically the hypertext transfer protocol was invented by Tim Berners-Lee. I mean, that's the ba- that's the HTTP mm-hmm. that we all used to use before the S was put on there. But you couldn't really access it. I mean, you could, but ordinary people couldn't. And then this thing came out and it was like called Mosaic, which is the first web browser, which unlike the web browsers we have today, you had to go buy in Radio Shack, I don't know what the price was, $29.95 or something. You got seven floppies and you upload them into your computer, but then you are on the web when there only were about a thousand pages altogether, right? That was, uh, but I looked at this, I said, wow, this is the key. This is the one place where we are, Estonia, despite being left behind with 50 years of Soviet occupation, that this is where we don't have, we will not face Zeno's paradox. Now, the next question is, how do you get there? Well, the way to do it, and what I proposed was that we put computers in every school in the system, in the school system, and um, and connect them all up, mm-hmm. and um, 
which we did. And we had this, uh, since we know what human nature is like, it, it, there was a matching thing. The government would pay for half for any school system that wanted to do it. And then first the initial ones and then the and then the usual envy kicks in because the neighboring school districts say, why do they have it? Welcome, we don't have it. And um, <laughs> so the result was by 1998, all Estonian schools were online and had computer labs. So we were already digitizing governance at that time. But then the real insight came, not by me, unfortunately, but some far smarter people that actually this none of this would work unless you have a secure digital identity end-to-end -end encryption, yeah. um, two-factor auth uh, authentication, all the things that the U.S. doesn't have until now and that was, I think, instituted by the U.S. military only in 2013, but we did it in 2000, 2001. Mm -hmm. So we are at the point, and we're even then at the point when, I mean, when we were attacked, uh, but... Uh, where there are only three things you can't do online, which one is get married, and the second mm -hmm. to get divorced. I mean, you have to show up for that. And then finally, do um, transfer uh, real property, which is because right. of our long-term fear of what also plagues the United States, which are anonymous shell companies with, uh, with all kinds of unknown beneficial owners, which leads to, for example... Uh, the consigliere of uh, Semyon Mogolevich, the biggest mafioso in Russia, buying apartments in Trump Tower. So, I mean, this is what we did yeah. not want. So you're telling me by, by 2007, much of the digitization of, of government um, in society was, was happening even before these attacks? Yes, yes. So the system that we had it was, was robust, robust enough that it never was taken down. Right. All the other stuff was taken down. Right. Newspapers, banks. But this couldn't be yeah. taken down. What about what about um, so the, the personal? And I don't know what the term is here. We always refer to it as an ID card, but the digital pass key uh, that was not taken down in these cyber attacks. But I think you mentioned banks. Um, that's pretty serious. For a lot of yes. people, having an attack on a bank is hits hits them where it really counts and causes, if not panic, some serious concern. What what do you recall about the immediate reaction, both within and outside of government, when the scope of these attacks became clear? Well, I mean, this the the government immediately called in and or met with the. The uh, the heads of the banks, but really the the true heroes here were all the uh, the chief uh, technical officers, the CTOs of the banks, who actually knew how to run things. And uh, um, in one case, we actually had to reboot the largest bank in the country. I mean, just take it offline and start all over again. Um, but we managed to do it. <laughs> Uh, this the, on the in the aftermath, of course. Um, well, one of the things that um, you need to know about DDoS attacks is that, um, and what people don't get to this day is that you overload a server with too many pings for it to handle, and it just shuts down. Mm -hmm. And the way it worked was that uh, it was done by 
various mafioso groups that spent that made their money spamming, sending out spam in all directions. Yep. Uh, they did they they do this via hijacked computers, computers that have um, have malware in them that is then can be activated by and controlled to send out signals. So what the, what the result is, you get email messages from all over, everywhere in the world, wherever a computer has been hijacked. Um, at that time, 25% of computers in the world were estimated to be have been hijacked. And the best way to have your computer hijacked is go to a free porn site and download something from that, and you'll get free porn, and you'll also get your computer hijacked. So, I mean, that gives you kind of an indication of how many computers are how many people are watching porn if 25% of worldwide computers, at least at the time, uh, had um, this kind of malware? And so you, you cannot say, oh, this was done by this, this person. It was done by tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, and then the sad thing, which I guess is kind of a leitmotif for another aspect of what we can talk about, is that when we went to NATO, uh, some large countries in NATO, not the United States or the UK, which understood mm -hmm. what was going on, but other large countries would say, oh, you can't prove it. You're just being Russophobic, um, mm. was kind of uh, typical. I mean, especially when it's said by people who really would not have been able at the time to distinguish a, uh, a computer from a toaster. <laughs> but it was indicative of the attitude that I think that has persisted on the part of many West European countries until the 24th right. of February of this year. Now, you attribute that to countries, but I'm wondering, did, did you notice a divergence of opinion? That is, some people in, let's say, Germany and France uh, just hypothetically, that some people within those governments and, uh, and industries understood what you were saying, but but others and perhaps the majority did not? Or was it uniform? No. Uh, well, first, I think it's the policymakers didn't really. I mean, to this day, some of those countries are extremely yep. undigitized. Um, I really, I, it was really basically NSA and GCHQ, US and uh, the UK, respectively, Mm -hmm. that understood what had happened. But a number right. of other countries really, I mean, there was no no awareness in the policymaking diplomatic elite of anything digital. And I, I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, it was only in 2011 that the Munich Security Conference actually had its first panel on, on cyber, cyber attacks, cyber anything. So, I mean, that was four years afterwards. Um, now, we recovered out of that. I mean, there was kind of a, okay, well, that was that. But you could see it already being weaponized since a year afterwards, mm -hmm. in 2008, with the Russian invasion of Georgia. Uh, they had already weaponized it so that they would do DDoS attacks on a region. So people had no access to the, uh, to the web. And then they would bomb. I mean, that was kind of like it was a you know a double tap, as it were, to use the Russians' tactics. Um, though at that time we had already gotten to the point where uh, we were hosting mirror sites for Georgian 
uh, Georgian web pages so that uh, they couldn't, we would mirror what they were doing. And so you could access the Estonian mirroring of a Georgian page to mm -hmm. ameliorate or some of mm -hmm. the, the issues. But I mean, that, that was, I mean, basically I would say that, uh, and I do say that if you, if your definition of war follows um, Karl von Clausewitz, that it's the continuation of policy by other means, well, then that is the first cyber war. I mean, it will, every history of cyber wars, even if you can say that, that what, was, what took place in 2007 was primitive, which it was, that marks the beginning because up till that point, none of this stuff had been done in a public way. I mean, sure, right. there had been Moonlight Mile going into the mm -hmm. U.S. Department of Defense and various hacking attempts, but never to shut anything down the way it was used in this way. So it was an actual weapon to shut down one nation state. And of course, since then, I mean, my, my bookshelf here is just full of this stuff, all about every, all of this stuff. But back then it was uh, Terra Nova. We didn't know what the hell was going on. And because no one else did, we didn't quite get it. That's, let's talk a little bit more about something you, you glided over here. You said, so we had these attacks and we recovered and then you move on to Georgia. But I really want to focus on that recovery because to me, the, the, the story of Estonia, the cyber attacks and its digital resilience sense is, is a longer story than just an attack and we moved on. Talk a little bit about the recovery. Here you are presiding over a country uh, that has a bank that has to be fully rebooted. Um, all of the, not all of, but most of the major public facing websites of the media and others were taken down. And that is something that does require some real effort to recover from, but also a plan for how are we going to build into the system a way that this won't happen the same way again. So talk through that a bit. What was the recovery process like from the first hours of the attack to the weeks and months later as you were building up that resilience? Well, one of the first things, I, I mean, you should know that because we are so digital, we attempted uh, and did, in fact, uh, in 2005, have the first uh, digitally run elections. There were local elections. It had ridiculously low participation rate. I think 0.03% of the population voted Ooh. online, which Ooh. we should come back to, by the way. Please. Uh, so we had already, and we had gamed an attack on our system. And as a result, had set up already some mirror sites with partners. Okay. After the attack, we expanded this, and, and there is something called the called a CERT, which is a cyber emergency response team. And every country has one, or if it's if it's big, if it's a bigger country, you have one in every state in the U.S. or should. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so we expanded that network because I mean anyone who actually does anything you know in this realm understands what happened to us, 
and the need that, well, okay, what happens if they do this next month to Belgium, for example? So uh, that network uh, was uh, expanded. I mean, it's all in kind of informal, but uh, I mean, the, the, uh, the CIOs or CTOs of countries and regions basically know each other because they're all geeks and geeks get together and, you know, they talk to each other. And maybe they used to work together or go to school together. Right. But I mean, so it's a kind of an international uh, group, uh, informal. It's not formalized. At least it was not then. Now in the European Union, it has been much more uh, become much more formal, but nonetheless, at the time, it was not because this was not deemed a major threat. Uh, and so that was the first thing. And the other thing that <laughs> one thing that we did, which was we had already before the uh, April May attacks been petitioning NATO as NATO allies to. Uh, to open up a center of excellence for cyber. Now, you have to understand, in NATO, there are some 80 centers of excellence. My favorite mm -hmm. one is the center of excellence for operations in shallow and closed waters based in Kiel, Germany. <laughs> uh, but there was nothing for cyber at all. There were yeah, so 80, 80 centers for excellence on any variety of information, strategy, all kinds of things, but nothing on cyber at that point. Nothing at that point. So, and we've been saying, look, folks, you know, this is, <laughs> I mean, given that, you know, given where we are now, where uh, the U.S. has defined cyber as the fifth domain of warfare and NATO as the fourth, we've come a long way. But in any case, one of the results of this was they said, okay, okay, Estonians, here, we will put the, the, the center of excellence for cyber in Tallinn, Estonia, where it's been ever since. Um, and uh, I would hope forms kind of a, a, the basis for what I think in the future will be one of the key aspects of defense. Not that we'd be based in Estonia, but rather an understanding that none of this will work as long as we maintain our both our academic as well as territorial silos and borders. Since Seems similar in that way to the disinformation issue. And isn't there a disinformation center for the study of excellence in uh, neighboring Latvia? Yes, there is. That yeah. came after that. That was but my similar. wife's project. <laughs> oh, there you go. It's a, it's, it's definitely one of those issues like cyber, where you know, seen as something that each country should handle leads to a suboptimal outcome, and yet getting the bureaucracy to recognize that this is something to invest in and really build the institutions of transnational cooperation is hard until you have a crisis, and sometimes the crisis is the opportunity to get those things built. But it, it unfortunately, I mean, the mandate of both those centers is uh, extremely limited. So uh, the mandate um, really applies only to attacks on NATO itself, which is already right. a drawback. I mean, so the not case an individual I, country, but on the institution of NATO. Right. So we oh. and in there, it's it it's supposedly better now, but. 
In any case, around 2011, we discovered a Russian worm in our military networks, and we went to NATO and said, oh, look what we discovered in our military network. And the response was, oh, you too. <laughs> Wrong answer. <laughs> a little too late. Now, the point of all of what, I, what I'm trying to say is, look, we have, I mean, we'll just take two of the main Russian hacking groups. AP, we call APT28 or 29, Fancy Bear, Cozy Bear, whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. uh, who have they attacked? They've attacked the USA Department. They've attacked the Dutch Foreign Ministry, the Italian mm -hmm. Foreign Ministry, the German Bundestag or their parliament. They've attacked the, the Department of Defense, Department of State. Uh, they have attacked German think tanks. I mean, these are all things we've discovered, right, that they attack. They've even attacked WADA, which is the World Anti-Doping Agency which was set up because they were investigating uh, and had the evidence for uh, yeah. state-sponsored doping of athletes. Mm -hmm. So, the, But the point of this is that they do not respect national borders. Like, why would they? I mean, they just go where they can. Whereas we are stuck, in, the, in this case, we are stuck by our by territory so we each of us do this on by ourselves and in some sense it's understandable because basically all of this stuff came out of signal intelligence it started i mean basically it was nsa gchq dsge in france i mean and they're spy outfits and the last thing they want to do is just Share there's not an institutional bias towards sharing. I'll put it that way. And then there's the then there's of course the other silo, which is disciplinary. So you can have in you have again with NATO, we have the guys and women who deal with disinformation, and then you have the guys who are dealing with hacking. And they don't talk to each other. In fact, I actually had an explicit experience with this when. About a year and a half ago, the issue of deep fakes became more salient. And so I, I went to the Estonian Cyber Center and I said, are you dealing with deep fakes? And then they sort of called back and said, well, you know, that's content. And we don't deal with content. We deal with sort of hacking. And then I went to the um, the Center of Excellence for for strategic communication or which deals with disinformation. I said, well, are you dealing with this? And they go, no, no, that's actually technical. And we don't deal with the technical side of things. And so what you have here is something which, <laughs> I mean, I'm not criticizing them. That Those are their mandates as specified by NATO. So they can't really move out of that area, but we are, we need to get out of our disciplinary silos and we need to get around our border defined uh, exchange of information because right. the adversary uh, first of all sees all of this as an as a continuum mm -hmm. I mean from I mean the overdone Gerasimov doctrine basically comes down to it use anything you can and there's no reason I mean so either you can hack or you can use it as disinformation. And the perfect case of this is what happened to Hillary Clinton, where you had one group attacked, uh, I mean, hacked her emails. And then another group um, 
passed it on to WikiLeaks, and then with the uh, sort of willing um, willing accessories uh, in the New York Times and the Washington Posts, you know, hyped the story. So I mean, it crosses boundaries, intellectual well, boundaries, disciplinary boundaries. You know, it's interesting. You talk so much about the the international aspects and the the need for the cooperation across borders because the adversary doesn't respect those borders. Uh, but again, back to the immediate aftermath of the 2007 attacks, you had to take action in the country regardless. You had to decide what to do and how to do it. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk through just a little bit how that operated in the Estonian system. Did this require the parliament to to enact new laws, or was this a matter of executive action? And what societal cooperation did did you have to put together to ensure that that you could rebuild and basically get that process started? Well, the technical side of this was fairly easy. I mean. <laughs> You reboot. I mean, it's a yep. little more complicated to reboot the biggest bank in the country. Sure. Um, but, you know, banks do maintenance on their web pages, so it wasn't that bad. <laughs> and I couldn't get into my bank last night because they were doing maintenance. So, uh, and what, what it did do was uh, it raised awareness of Estonians that, in fact, they were more vulnerable because they, we were more digital. Um, which also raised their awareness that, in fact, they were ahead of all these countries that would never have known they were under a cyber attack right. if they were. But then uh, one of the first things was a civil a civil society response was that, well, we, like many countries, have you know the equivalent of a national guard. But we then created a cyber national guard. Um, and the cyber national guard consists of, you know, sysadmins or systems administrators and CTOs and geeks and people at startups who uh, get together once a week to work on improving cybersecurity um, and other things. <laughs> and so, uh, I mean, we got this, I mean, there was this realization that if you're going to be among the better people in the world in digital matters, then you also have to be among the better people in defense mm -hmm. uh, of your, since so much of what we do is now digital or already then was. Now, one of the things that people, I did mention before, you know, we vote online. Last election, yeah, yeah. 46%. And every time there's an election, someone writes to me or calls me up and says, can we do that here? And my response always is, don't try this at home, which is that in order that we have extremely secure elections, but in order to do that, you need the infrastructure and architecture that we have had in place for 21 years. Mm -hmm. And that means, as I mentioned before, a secure, unique identity, you need two-factor authentication. You need end-to-end -end encryption. You know, right. it's not your email address and a pass, a single password that can easily be broken. You know, it does not work that way, which mm -hmm. is why why having you can't vote online, as it were, um, in the way that people most people think of what is online. 
you really need the ecosystem. And the other side is that it takes years and years to develop the trust among people to use the system. Right. Um, and so, uh, as I said, 0.03% of people voted online in 2005, uh, 46%, 47% in our last elections. Mm. So it's been... It's been growing, but you know this is this is this does not happen overnight. The other thing that I'm often asked here, I'm asking your questions for you, but is that, well, do the people trust the government? The people here say it's Big Brother. Well, there is a distinction yeah. here between. I mean, I think that uh, Estonians don't, uh, think no better of the people in in the at the top of the government than. Anyone else elsewhere thinks of their government. Mm -hmm. But this is truly a Westminster system that you have the people at the top who have been elected. But then underneath that, you have the functioning of the government. I mean, in the United States, it's you, it's you have the say the Biden or Trump or or Obama administration, but underneath them are the civil servants. Mm -hmm. And that now. In the U.S., that's all the government. But in fact, here, um, it's it, as in German, maybe, I mean, you have the Regierung, which is the, the parties that are make the coalition and the ministers. But underneath that, you have the, the civil service. Mm -hmm. So the trust in the system that we have is in the, the digital architecture and its functioning Whereas, you know, when it comes to the prime minister, I mean, you know, the same stuff that you have sure. anywhere else where, you know. Sure. So tell me, how did you overcome some of the skepticism to the digitization? Because the impression from outside Estonia and from even when I visited Tallinn many years ago now, the impression is that it is uh, widely accepted, welcomed. It's almost a, a national point of pride, but I'm I'm confident it wasn't always that way. And when you were starting to push for it, there probably was some resistance. How do you overcome the skeptics on issues like this? Uh, having it work. I mean, <laughs> when I first proposed this in '95. Uh, for the following year, the the weekly newspaper of the teachers' union didn't miss an issue without an article personally attacking me as the as the enemy of Estonian education, Estonian language, Estonian culture, and everything else. So uh, that was, uh, but slowly what happened was that people realized life was much easier when you could do this. Uh, I mean, you get, when you pay your taxes, you get, I mean, since since all the reporting is digital, I mean, when I get my tax return, I mean, I, I log on and there it has all the money I've been paid. Um, and then, mm -hmm. you know, maybe I forgot that maybe that there's something there that I haven't included because someone from abroad hasn't reported it or something. I look at it and if it looks right, I press enter and then I get, you know, it has all the deductions. Everything is done. Um, so that that was something, I mean, that's my advice since I am often invited to talk about digitization. 
um, to various countries, uh, one of the things I say is just start with the taxes. It's such an it's such an awful process mm-hmm. um, to pay for your taxes. Um, right. I mean, to fill out your tax form. So you can digitize. It's not hard to do. I mean, computers do this much better than you sitting there with a calculator and writing it down <laughs> on a piece of paper. You mentioned in there some resistance from the teachers at one point. And yet my limited understanding of what's happened in Estonia is that what's happened in the schools is remarkable. And I think it's at least related to and perhaps coterminous with the the Tiger Leap program of educating teachers and educating children. So educating teachers on how to how to teach coding, how to teach digital awareness, how to teach the kind of logic that you need to program, and then teaching children as young as six or seven years old on some of these concepts. That's that's a big, ambitious program, and it has been lauded in most educational circles that have looked at it. But I'm curious how that squares with what you mentioned about teacher resistance to some of this early on. Well, that was 25 years ago. I mean, that has changed considerably. Um, I, I remember at, toward the end of my term in 2015, 16, I would go around and we had, but already then we were kind of had more startups or successful startups than just about anyone per capita. So I started asking people, so how'd you start in this? And you know, someone was typically in the late 20s, early 30s. And they'd say, oh, I was, a, well, I'd say 80% of the time. Or four out of five. <laughs> I was a kid in that program of yours. <laughs> you know, so they were 15-year-olds. And then they learned to code. And then they now, you know, 15, 20 years later, they have their own company. Um, it's been very, I mean, I think the educational system in Estonia really, I mean, there is something called the PISA test, which is administered by the OECD. You can get a PISA, like the tower. And um, Estonia has, for the past 15 years, been number one or number two in as the best educated non-Asian students. Basically, mm-hmm. the U.S. is like, I don't know, 30. You know, Germany's like 17. Mm-hmm. Let's not talk about that. No, no, but I'm saying you have a... Um, it's a di- I mean, the educational system is more rigorous and people are used to it. Um, and of course, you know, basically Korea, Taiwan, uh, Singapore still are ahead. But in terms of Europe or uh, Europe or North America, uh, the, the, those members of the OECD, we're just ahead of them. Uh but that really comes not so that does not come from digitization. It comes from a fairly rigorous, um, rigorous educational system mm-hmm. that actually is much more demanding uh, than uh, you have in other places. Right, right. Let's shift to how this relates to some of what we've been seeing recently. As we're recording this, we're two weeks into the newest Russian invasion of of Ukraine, and one of the dominant themes related to this that I've seen in the past two weeks is a bit of surprise among some in the cyber community that there was not a much more robust 
Russian or Russian-backed cyber attack against all things Ukrainian, and that in the wake of massive sanctions and corporate pullouts from Russia, that there have not been similar Russian or Russian-backed attacks on many of these corporations. And I'm wondering what perspective you have on that based on the experience from 2007 in Estonia and its aftermath. Why do you think that the cyber activity has been perhaps less than many observers thought? The first word I would say is yet. (laughs) Right. There is still time. Although, as you mentioned, in previous Russian activities, there there would be a cyber, uh, an initial cyber foray followed by kinetic action. And in this case, we're saying, well, maybe the cyber attacks will come later, which is a slight a slight change in that order. Yeah, I'm I'm actually among those who are surprised since uh, some of the biggest takedowns of uh, uh, in cyber warfare have been in the past directed toward Ukraine. Um, and in fact, I mean, the, I think it, David Sanger's book, I think, The Perfect Weapon, one of the, I mean, there's so many, they all run into one another these days for me. But I mean, yep. began in 2015, where an entire large area was uh, deprived of power uh, with a cyber attack uh, that then, uh, in fact, I recall, we sent people down to Ukraine to help them fix the mess, as did the United States. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, There might be, I mean, there are possibly any number of reasons. I mean, some of which may have to do with uh, uh, US messaging saying that uh, don't even think about it because you too will get this. Um, I mean, that's probably the most effective way of doing it because um, because once you have a war on, going on and you start seeing attacks, um, there is that taboo is broken. I mean, the taboo against attacking a country, uh, which is observed mainly by the West. But once you are attacking, then maybe there's not there's not that much of it. And I think that um, some of the reluctance or recalcitrance to get into major cyber attacks up till now, I stress, has been precisely this idea that, well, you know, they could also take us down. Um, And so, and I think it's indicative that one of the largest um, ransomware groups said, we're neutral, we're not doing anything, (laughs) which (laughs) indicates that maybe they're not you know, a little concerned about what might happen. And so I, I, you know, I, I don't know what is going on, what this messaging has been, but it is clear, yes, that um, the, uh, there have been uh, fewer attacks than anticipated. I mean, in some sense, I mean, I just published a long paper, not a long, I just published a, a, an article uh, in a book saying that, you know, future wars will be, uh, will be digital and uh, the kinetic part will be, uh, mopping up. And mm-hmm. So I just got proved wrong for I mean, <laughs> or or you're just farther ahead of your time than you thought. <laughs> well, it came out on the 21st of February, so <laughs> yeah. Yeah. we'll apply it in future years then. I yeah, I think it will be. I think one of the things actually the the point of that article and there's some others I've written 
is that pure, strictly, um, as long as words are strictly kinetic, you know, sort mm -hmm. of following this, uh, Newton's uh, second law of force equals mass times acceleration, where acceleration is you know, basically distance divided by time squared. Mm -hmm. uh, we have things like NATO, which are, I mean, which is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And you say, well, why isn't Japan in there? Because they're not in the North Atlantic. Now, as long as you have, I mean, as long as you have strictly kinetic wars, then you're constrained by things such as tank logistics, mm -hmm. bomber refueling, fighter range, troop transport. And hence, you have the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. But now in the digital realm, we do not, we're not constrained by any of that. So, you know, Tallinn, Torino, Toronto, and Tokyo are basically microseconds apart when it comes to an attack. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any difference where you are. And so this, in one, on the one hand, means that organizations such as NATO have, have slightly less utility. Um, on the other hand, they, uh, we have a new opportunity, which is that you can actually create a genuinely value-based alliance of right. countries to defend us digitally, which would include, to my mind, Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, New Zealand, Australia, but any number of other countries that we think conform to the uh, the principles of a liberal rules-based democracy that doesn't invade its neighbors and respects fundamental rights and freedoms and all of that. And so, in fact, uh, in the future, I suspect there will be or should be, and I hope there will be, uh, an alliance of uh, countries based on um, really their, the values held by them and uh, defending these countries across the globe digitally. Right. And another aspect in that article you mentioned is the information war. So not the, the cyber attack, not the distributed denial of service type attacks, but misinformation, disinformation. And this is hard, but it's also something that Estonian education has gotten at to try to educate children and adults about how you know what is fake news and how to verify information and how not to fall for conspiracism. And that seems like that's been the tougher nut to crack in recent years than even cybersecurity the way it's traditionally defined. Um, how are you seeing that information war play out in the Russia Ukraine space today. And again, what lessons have you learned from the societal education effort that might help us all now? Well, there's a, I mean, basically, I would list five countries that have taken this genuinely seriously. And those are Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Finland, and Sweden. They all have their own national programs on actually getting kids uh, to be able to identify fake news. We in the, in the three countries have a slight advantage, and I think this is one that also Ukraine has, which is that you've been subjected to this kind of crap for so long 
that yeah. it it no you don't you don't believe it. I my experience has been that the susceptibility to disinformation is far greater in countries that have not been subjected mm -hmm. to it for long, and that I mean, right. look at um, Tucker Carlson um, to see how disinformation can be instrumentalized by an adversary and you have your basically your um, willing accessories who uh, not to say useful idiots who will then spread things and and it will be listened to we we know that it's a far more wide-reaching campaign than people often realize i mean i think where we have been somewhat susceptible to it is uh, with the with masks and vaccinations, it's important to note that before COVID, just before COVID, um, you could uh, there were already uh, disinformation campaigns directed at, at, at Italy on how bad vaccination was because they had an outbreak of measles, mm -hmm. which. And they were saying, well, don't vaccinate, right? Because vaccinations are bad. And then came this heaven sent COVID, which, and its vaccination, which has now been really promoted to the point where, I mean, there, this couple of months ago, I remember reading how RT Germany was pushing, was just saying, you're going to, you know, don't vaccinate. It's bad. It's going to do this. While their bosses, other the other subsidiary, the Russian language state media, was okay. telling people, you're going to be fired if you don't vaccinate because this yes. is so bad. So, I mean, it. Yeah. So, I mean, you could think of this as psychological, chemical, biological warfare. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you're telling people not to get vaccinated against something that will kill you. And uh, of course, there are a lot of useful idiots who then amplify that. And um, I mean, mm -hmm. you can see that uh, in some of the statistics, which I hope will be in the future better teased out. Where you know the where the use of certain social media or certain certain channels is higher, more highly correlated with uh, severe COVID than others. I mean, I yep. think that's partially the case you can see with uh, the blue state versus red state uh, infection rates. Right. Uh, and I guess since there's a correlation between blue states and red, I mean, media behavior and blue states versus red states in the United mm -hmm. States, I think you'll see that you see the same thing uh, in Europe as well. Um, and that's uh, that. I mean, ultimately, this leads to kind of a Darwinian situation that if you believe in conspiracy theories and Russian propaganda, you're going to have a lower um, or a, a shortened lifespan. But that's getting kind of Darwinian at, at some level. But of course, they can externalize that as well, because not vaccinating yourself uh, doesn't just put yourself at risk. Right. It puts at risk the community, which may not have the same beliefs as you do. So. Uh, the evolutionary side of it gets a little bit garbled. But back to the uh, information warfare, there's one specific aspect of this that you brought up earlier that I wanted to get back to, which is deep fakes. Because maybe I, like you, being 
pessimistic about these things. I I fully expected that at the time when Russia reinvaded Ukraine two weeks ago, that we would start seeing videos of Zelensky saying things like, I'm I'm giving up. Um, I actually am a Nazi. The the Russians have figured me out and I am bad for Ukraine. And it would look like him saying it. Or you would see other Ukrainian figures saying, we welcome the liberators. We have been chafing under this evil government. And frankly, I've been surprised at how bad Russian information operations have been and the absence of these now relatively easily produced deep fakes. And I'm wondering if even people like like you and me can can be a little more optimistic than we've been, and maybe we should take away from this that we need to be vigilant about this uh, this kind of activity. But if the Russians aren't doing it now, maybe we were a little too concerned about their full abilities across the spectrum. Well, they are pretty good. It's more surprising they didn't do this, and they were really bad at this this past weekend where there was this uh, obvious green screen um, uh, meeting of Putin and Mm -hmm. flight attendants. Right. Which, if if no one's seen it, it's basically he's sitting there. This is the guy who won't let anyone within 30 feet of him it was quite a contrast to all the long table meetings with his own officials, but the the flight attendants seemed to be cozied up right next to him. Right. But he had this microphone in front of him and his hand kept going through the microphone. It was this obvious that this had been green screened. And uh, to which I think, at which point I understand that Zelensky is a genius because he was asked about this. And what he did speaking was they had a similar kind of microphone and he he just sw- pushes it aside with his hand. <laughs> I mean, which was such an obvious reference to Putin's hand going through this, through, through this microphone over and over. But when Zelensky speaks, his hand pushes the microphone to the side. Mm-hmm. It was sheer genius. Subtle I, but I, effective. And it seems that they have been so caught up in their rhetoric about how Ukraine isn't a state and how they're incapable, but they began to believe it themselves. And now there's this shock that, in fact, Ukraine is not at all the way they said it was and that they believe their own propaganda. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. Yeah. Let me ask one other question about, um, about Russia before we start to close. So... There are a lot of people now across Europe who are looking at you, and not just you, but but others, but you are one of them, and saying, you tried to tell us so. Um, you've, you've been out there talking about what Russia and Putin are capable of, and we collectively turned the other way and were, were drawn in by commercial opportunity, and we were willing to overlook things from... 2007 to to Georgia to 2014 to all of these things and and now we realize the error of our ways and yet I don't see that last part <laughs> yeah that's the part Apparently. that I'm wondering about because you you see this sense from many who who were feeling that way before saying you know but now there's no Nord Stream or 
but now we've put some sanctions on a few people. And I'm wondering if you see that that is the appropriate level of reaction to this realization that for decades, they've been wrong on this fundamental strategic issue. I would say there are two factors. One is that there has been this kind of uh, orientalist, if to use Edward Said's kind of classic work uh, approach to Eastern Europe, that they're somehow, uh, they're not so smart and they're kind of primitive and, uh, and they don't speak all the languages so well, which of course has been changing, has changed dramatically over 30 years. And, you know, they don't really know what they're talking about. You know, I mean, cl- I mean as I said, the 2007 response that, oh, you're just being Russophobic, sort of captures it that, you know, they can't conceive even of the fact that it might be a country that is a lot better than they are in cyber issues. We just immediately say, well, if they say this, it's because they're East European and therefore, and so the other thing is a kind of an anti-empiricist bias that, you know, we know, I mean, basically you people don't know what you're talking about because you have experienced it or you're not objective, right? I mean, that's the kind of language that we've had to deal with, that we know how to do it. I remember I was um, a Finnish diplomat and when in my early days in Washington, came and put his arm around me and said, Thomas, you know, we Finns, we have so much experience with the Russians, which I looked at him and I said, oh, we have no experience with the Russians at all. I mean, what do you do with this? This this wow. And that I think has that really ended. That ended on February 24th, which incidentally yep. is also Estonian Independence Day. Mm-hmm. Um, but that ended on the 24th of February, um, which led to a complete turnaround. Um we saw, I mean, within uh, three days. Four days, you had uh, Olaf Scholz give a speech to yeah. the Bundestag, you know, announcing they're going to, like, after 30 years of not spending money on on uh, defense, after 50 years of Ostpolitik, of basically what, I mean, the slogan was Wandel durch Handel, change through trade. And then you realize that, well, it didn't really work too well. Um mm-hmm. And so there has been this change, um, and um, we'll see how long it lasts. I mean, my current fear is that the minute the Russians make a concession, everyone's going to run to, okay, now let's take off all the sanctions, whereas without any real dramatic change in in the behavior of the country, that's mm-hmm. really ridiculous. The other problem, and one of the, where the uh, sort of exculpatory factor here is that mm-hmm. for the West, for the more Western countries, is that Russian behavior toward the Eastern members was completely different from the behavior toward the Western ones. I mean, toward the West, it was relatively right. psychophantic and kind of like, oh, well, we know. You know we're, whereas it was brutal, nasty, uh, uh, sort of uh, boorish towards the countries in the east and that mm-hmm. uh, and so uh, the western countries didn't see that kind of behavior which we saw um, you know sort of uh, uh, you know there was an interesting mistranslation right after Christmas where which is repeated unfortunately but the, the Lavrov said um mm-hmm. 
saying, well, all these countries in the former Warsaw Pact were left orphaned. What he really said in Russian was that they were left without a master. And this actually completely re-encapsulates, I'm glad a Russian said it, you know, um, re reiterates what Kennan said 80 years earlier, that you, or 75 years earlier, that if you're a neighbor of Russia, you can only be an enemy or a vassal. And yep, yep. Lavrov comes right out and says, you know, I mean, if you if they've lost their masters, that means they're not Russia's vassals anymore. And this is what irks this. There is this this imperial mindset. Yeah. And it applies to the masterless people. And it, it is not applied to Germany or France or mm -hmm. those other countries. And the added. And so the attitudes and behaviors we have seen through the years have been quite different, which leads to different perceptions. So I'm, as I said, that's exculpatory. I'm giving those countries a break. <laughs> How generous of you. Uh, but it also points to another issue, which is that this is not solely a Putin problem, that there is this um, Russian elite view of imperialism, as you call it, um, and of uh, the master relationship that does not go away if Putin falls, you know, falls over tomorrow and dies. Uh, that is something that is not unique to him. Um, here on Chatter, we close out with our uh, famous Chatterbox, which is full of random questions that we will put you on the spot with by asking one that I'll pull randomly. Name one dead political or national security related leader from any era that we could really use right now? I don't know. If, if I were to say the first uh, first name that comes to mind, I, I would probably ruin my reputation for life. <laughs> but I would say George Patton. George Patton. Why, why do we need him right now? Because he was, he didn't have a problem in dealing with um, uh, a military leader who had uh, had a clear vision of what was evil and what was good and was willing to go and do something about it and did. I like that answer. And one of my favorite Patton stories is actually a non-story, which is the battle he didn't fight, that knowing the importance of the D-Day landings, that one of the biggest aspects of the deception campaign was setting up the first U.S. Army group in Southeast England under Patton's command because they knew that Hitler personally and his high command respected Patton so much uh, that that helped essentially seal the lie that there was such a huge army group waiting to land at the Pas de Calais instead of Normandy. And it tied down German troops for weeks afterwards, afraid to commit to Normandy. And it involved Patton mostly against his will sitting on the sidelines uh, of that major landing. Um, not not what you meant when you said Patton, but that always brings a smile to my face, thinking of Patton stewing, not being in the action, but knowing that it actually contributed to the overall strategic goal. Well, I can think of all kinds of other people as well, but somehow his, um, maybe I'm too influenced by the George C. Scott movie <laughs> as a child. Maybe, maybe you think George C. Scott is who should be back. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you for your 
uh, for your time today and the wide ranging conversation. Not pleasant topics, but a pleasure to speak with you. And thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. <laughs>